to the Radius of Reason podcast. Hello, hello. I'm Levon with my co-host. I am Andre with my arch nemesis, Levon. And today, speaking of arch nemesis, we are talking about good and evil. That was a really well done intro. That was the best yet. You missed a calling in working as a radio DJ. Yeah, in a parallel universe, uh, I'm a homeless radio DJ. Oh, because of the homeless golden voice guy? Is that what you're referencing? I have no idea. Let's just let's just start this before I embarrass myself. Let's get further. into the podcast. All right. So now, why is this topic important? Why is the idea of good and evil important? Well, I think it kind of ties back to a lot of what we talked about in our previous episodes, where we're very much existing in a media cycle right now that's throwing out a lot of really terrifying stories. Uh, we have school shootings. We have mass warfare. It seems like it's a pretty good time to revisit the general nature of the human condition and just talk a little bit about what it means to be good or what it means to be evil. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, understanding good and evil and whether you know morality in general is objective or not, it can help us develop ethical frameworks to actually analyze a lot of these societal problems like um, you know, how we should punish people, uh, whether they have responsibility, you know, I mean, all these questions, um, even in the future, when we look ahead, uh, for example, questions relating to tech, uh, AI, um, you know, if you think about, uh, there's this trolley problem, right? Where, uh, you, you could use Tesla, you could use a Tesla as an example, right? Uh, kind of a futuristic trolley problem, if you will, where, <laughs> Your, your Tesla, uh, it can't stop. The brakes have failed for whatever reason. And it has to decide whether it's going to kill you. The self-driving Tesla is going to either kill you or the pedestrian. Like one of you has to die. It's going to, it has to diverge and hit like a, a brick wall or it has to run over the pedestrian. Like how do you decide what the move there is, right? And I mean, yeah, to your point, this is going to become an increasingly very common topic we're going to have to address as artificial intelligence becomes more and more commonplace in our life. I mean, Christ, two weeks ago, that app came out that everybody was freaking out on Twitter where an AI algorithm can start like generating random images, right, based off of text prompts. So we're getting to the point where it's starting to play an influence in our lives. But at some instance, we're going to have to take into consideration how AI will perceive decisions that might fall into the spectrum of human ethics and human morality. So if an AI does something, does that make the AI good, evil, neutral? And I, and I think that the trolley problem is actually great. I like how you made the modern like, twist on it where now it's a Tesla. But I mean, even in general, I think the graphic is something that everybody probably can think about of the original trolley problem where it's two tracks. There's somebody standing with a, with a track switch and there's a trolley full of people hurtling down the middle track and you have to choose if it's going to go and run over a bunch of people or go on another track where it's going to fly off a cliff or something like that. And it's kind of interesting with the Tesla example because clearly we're still struggling with these ethical questions regardless of the modes of transit that that uh, exactly and maybe that speaks to the the lack of progress that has been made uh when it comes to ethical philosophies and our understanding of good and evil um 
and 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 not just at the societal level but i also think it's very relevant at the individual level to really determine uh you know our, our values as human beings as individuals you know in our everyday lives what like what should i do given a particular situation right like we don't most of us haven't really thought about this we haven't dug deep and when when it comes to more complicated issues maybe we don't we don't have the tool tools to really uh address them so hopefully today we can we can make some progress on that and, and come out <laughs> with with something but uh yeah i, I would say uh, ethical philosophy is is underdeveloped and has not caught up with our scientific understanding Precisely. of human nature which we will get to soon enough but first let's kind of go over the history of good and evil <laughs> um and the history i mean it, it it start I, I want to start with religion but this has always been around obviously like uh even the most primitive societies had these notions i mean th these were truly cultural universals um but i mean beyond even pagan religions you let's go to like the first monotheistic religion arguably the first which was uh, zoroastrianism mm -hmm. um they had this basic conception of good and evil. They had the Ahura Mazda, which was like the good, uh, wise spirit. And then the, well, I'm not going to even try to pronounce what the, what the destructive one was. The Angra Manyu. Yes. Uh, the bad destructive spirit. So they had these conceptions kind of built in. And actually, as, as, a, as a side note, uh, Zoroastrianism is sort of the precursor actually to the abrahamic religion mm -hmm. so judaism right um and these religions as we all know are the most prolific right judaism christianity and islam easily the most pro prolific religions in the world today with billions of followers uh how committed <laughs> each of those followers are is a is another question but it's important to think about good and evil from a religious standpoint because it has so defined our cultural norms um you know you take the golden rule right do unto others as you would have them do unto you is that really something that you know originated from religion or you know they had that actually the greeks had that far before you know jesus ever uttered those words um so looking at uh the religious understanding of good and evil would you say it has been um sufficient in providing a a foundation of uh of values i think society? i think it helps us understand at least a very complicated spectrum but also in a way it's a little bit infuriating because it introduces a very rigid binary already into kind of our th collective thought process and, you know, you, 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 I think, provided a really good roundup specifically on like how monolithic, uh, monotheistic uh, faiths kind of started injecting some of the elements of polytheism where almost every single polytheistic religion had this kind of same binary, right? You had Zeus, you had Hades, um, you know, the Slavic pagan religions had their own gods that kind of encapsulated this. You had Anubis in Egypt. Um, and I, I think it's all religion is kind of and we're kind of getting outside the bounds of this particular episode, but it is a manifestation of the human earning for truth. And part of that truth is trying to understand 
our spectrum of reality. And it does simplify to these two sides, right? Religion introduces a concept when there's something inherently good or inherently bad. But that gets even more complicated because in all monotheistic religions, God is inherently an infallible kind of pure, perfect entity, which means if God partakes on an action or determines an action, it therefore must be inherently good. Right. And you, you've kind of stumbled onto the Euthyphro dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. Where is something good because God wills it or does God will it because it is good? And this gets exceptionally difficult to start thinking about when you start thinking of the atrocities committed on behalf of religion or in the name of God, right? The absolute insanity of the Crusades, the varying uh, episodic uh, tears of the Crusades, right? Um, going down to like the Children's Crusade where a bunch of little kids like sank in a ship in the Mediterranean Sea because God was sending them on a holy journey. Maybe for more modern times, you could think of some of the atrocities committed by the Islamic State um, in the last decade where a lot of their massacring of the Yazidi community was done in the name of God because the Yazidi communities were living in a way that God did not agree with. And of course, if God is in theory willing this, then it must be a good action. But as humans, we all kind of recoiled a little bit when we saw what they were doing in Sinjar. Yeah, yeah, no, this is a good point because I, so I used to, when I was debating religious people back in the day, uh, I still, I still do occasionally. <laughs> Throwing down sick debates. But I, I would, I would ask Christians like, you know, how do you know you're not being tricked by Satan? And Satan is evil in this, in this case. Well, Satan is assumed to be evil, right? Right. So, but, but how do you know, like, being good isn't actually deception by Satan? And, like, actually being evil is what God really wants, right? Kind of wants you to so, be bad. So they have to, what ends up happening is they end up defaulting to kind of, like, their, their conscience and, like, this mm -hmm. is given by God and, and all this stuff. So they always default back to uh, kind of the innate, uh, or the intuitions that we have, the moral intuitions that we have. Um, and I, I think it just goes to show kind of what you've been talking about here, but using God as the basis of morality, it just makes it arbitrary. You know, if he says rape is good, then is it now good? Mm, no, I mean, it's to me, to me, it's, it's not a solid foundation for moral values. And now we see in the modern day, this kind of, clash of values right mm -hmm. uh where people are you know they're saying religion christianity islam they're not getting with the times right well and evolving you, you bring that times. point up at a very pertinent time because just a few days ago the supreme court um, annulled the Roe versus wade ruling and a lot of the build-up to that was coming from the religious argument right that inherently abortion is right a, a perceived as a crime against humanity to a certain extent within the more kind of Christian interpretation of things, right? All life is sacred. Therefore abortions are bad, but you know, life isn't sacred after it leaves the womb. Because, of course. Yeah. Um, and that, but that's also introduces an interesting thing because what if the only understanding of intrinsic good and intrinsic evil we have the best case understanding does come from religion. And if you remove that equation, you actually have, complete anarchy in terms of how we self-govern ourselves or i mean I'm, I'm not a deeply devout person i mean i'm not religious at all but i definitely know that 
some of my understandings of what is good as bad can be tied back to what is seen as like a, a sin or could go back to biblical teaching. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation because although imperfect, maybe very imperfect, maybe even counterproductive sometimes, religion has, you know, throughout the years really been the basis for morality for a lot of people. Right. And, you know, it, it, it has worked to a certain extent, right? Um, but I guess moving forward and looking at it more from a philosophical standpoint, I think it, that that's, that's when it really starts to fail. And we're seeing that, you know, as you said, with the Supreme Court decision mm-hmm. on abortion, we're kind of seeing the limitations of using religion uh, as a basis for morality. And it goes back to your original point that the rate, the exponential rate at which our society is developing kind of fueled by technological advances is outpacing all of our understandings of what good and evil can be. And if the book was written, I guess, what, 2022 years ago or whatever, yeah, it, it doesn't have a frame of reference when we start introducing things like you mentioned, you know, artificial intelligence into the equation. Exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, you know, it, it will be, if it's not already obsolete, it will be sooner than later. Um, so, I spoke about moral intuitions and how when, you know, you kind of you'll question religious people on, on the topic, they, they might fall back on that to, mm-hmm. um, to, to talk about, um, you know, how they know, for example, that God is good or like, you know, that they're not being deceived by Satan, <laughs> as I brought up. Uh, this, this notion of like uh, moral intuitions, it kind of to to me, it's a it's a good segue into looking at the biological underpinnings of good and evil. So let's think about this from an evolutionary standpoint. I mean, think about like pain and pleasure, for example. Uh, you put your hand on a hot stove. That's bad. Why is that bad? Because it's going to burn your hand. Mm-hmm. Burning your hand is disadvantageous to your survival Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right so looking at it from that standpoint what can we say about morality is it almost an extent could you even group it with emotions like is a moral reaction to something like oh that was like uh morally disgusting is that really is that not any is that not just an emotion it is and and i i think it's still it's still just a spectrum of neutrality at that point. Let's say, yeah, like somebody sticks their hand in a fire and burns themselves. That doesn't make the fire evil. Exactly. You will avoid a certain action, but then the fire also has, you know, it keeps you warm. It cooks your food. So, yeah, well, yeah, there's a context dependency there. Um, but to kind of stay on track here with the with the idea of evolution, what we find, especially in, in social animals, that the, there is a huge utility in cooperation. Yes. I mean, this is why animals become social to begin with. If there was no utility in cooperating, you would you would not find a single social animal, right? It would be all like, we'd all be kind of like tigers, right? Hunting uh, just by ourselves. Living, <laughs> living in cabins in Montana. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so when we think about cooperation i think th- this is the context under which to think about morality because morality doesn't really make sense without a social context right if you were the only person on earth and you were like stuck on an island somewhere 
and you're kind of just going about your business, you're catching fish, you're killing some birds, whatever. There is no moral question in this scenario. Like it's, right. there's no question about is killing uh, a fish bad. Like that doesn't make any sense. You're just kind of surviving. Mm-hmm. The moment you introduce other agents, conscious agents into this uh, social system, into this context, then you start having questions about like, uh, you start having questions about how do we maximize our like survival and well-being, because that ends up being the only relevant question. You have to you have to make some assumption about what you're basing morality off. Like morality itself, it's kind of like a meaningless abstraction unless you put it into a certain context. I think it's only meaningless abstraction until it encounters another sentient entity. Where if you're on a, on an island by yourself with a rock for company, I mean, I guess some people could start attributing. But, it, but it's still meaningless until you assume. A goal, right? You, you kind of, I, I guess that's what I'm kind of alluding to here. You need a certain goal to say whether something is good or bad, right? So if the goal is to survive and reproduce or to maximize the well-being of your tribe, then now you have something to talk about. I guess it's good with respect to Survi- X, no, I, right? I, I think to your point, and to the point I think you make every damn show, it does eventually always come back to the survival instincts we have. Because let's say, yeah, you're, you're hanging out on an island by yourself, catching fish, drinking coconut water, kind of living it up, and all of a sudden I show up, right? You're, everything you're going to see is going to be through the prism of what does this mean for your capacity to survive. And that already in itself is going to attach, we wouldn't call it morals in this instant, but it's going to attach a hierarchy of if I show up, and I stay out of your way and I, you know, harvest my own coconuts and hang out on my side of the beach. That's going to be seen as more positive as if I start kicking your ass or going after your stockpile of fish. Right. And I think that's a concession that any sentient entity has to make when encountering another sentient entity. It's kind of a, an equation you run in your head against the prospect of survival, where if survival is the ultimate goal, and I think we could agree that subconsciously that's everything that drives us to a certain extent then everything will be seen as a frame of reference against that. Sure. From evolutionary standpoint, survival yes. and reproduction is the goal. I, I think we have to modify that a little bit when we start talking about like what we want as a society or how we want to define what's moral. I think, right. I think there, there's a little bit of but a But we're still talking there. in a very primitive sense. Right sure, now. sure. And I guess maybe to kind of make a reference, because this is a question that I have struggled with and thought a lot about ever since we started digging into this topic is this notion of like is there good and evil within the animal kingdom right if you have a group of baboons is is good and evil something that can manifest there and i think maybe this is the same prism through which you can see it if the goal of a baboon is to survive then a good or evil action would be one which either enables or uh, infringes upon the capacity. Right. So a baboon that hides all the food for himself, you could say like, it's, it's a bad, it, it's doing a bad thing because it, it's so detrimental to the survival of its, of its group. Whatever you right? call a group of baboons. Right. A tribe of baboons. A tribe. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> no, but this, so to kind of elaborate on this idea of like cooperation and, and why we evolved in the way that we did and why there's utility and how it could have started there there are you know a lot of theories in evolutionary biology 
Um, so how you go from like uh, a selfish, you know, kind of single agent that's on your own to a cooperative group of, uh, you know, individuals that are hunting and now like sharing food. Like how, how do you, how do you get to that point? So some of the theories are, for example, kin selection. So it's the easiest kind of path, I guess, to, how do you say, I guess, arriving at social cooperation and social behavior because your kin share in the context of, of you know, apes, for example, 50% of your DNA, right? So like your brother will have 50%. Okay. So if you're looking at it from a genes perspective, right, this is kind of what Richard Dawkins talked about in the mm-hmm. book, Selfish Gene. From the genes perspective, okay, you're more valuable than your brother, but... That's still 50% of your genes. So if you did something that enhanced the survival of your brother, ultimately, that kind of benefits you to a certain extent. There's actually, um, th- th- there's an interesting um, quote here that I want to provide. It comes from William Hamilton, who's one of the, like, the, the great evolutionary biologists of the 20th century. And they asked him, like, would you save a drowning brother? And he said, no, but I would save two drowning brothers or eight cousins. And that speaks to like kind of this almost mathematical relationship, this proportional relationship that we have when it comes to like our altruistic behavior towards uh, other people. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be more, most altruistic towards your family because you share the most genes. And then, you know, you could even expand that to like, hey, that's why we're more accepting of people that look like us than people that don't because mm-hmm. yeah you, if you look like someone odds are you share more of your dna with them than uh you know someone you don't look anything like so this notion of kin selection is kind of an interesting kind of um i guess it's the olive branch that we needed as a uh, species social species to start kind of expanding uh, our altruistic behavior and then there's these notions of uh, there, there's this notion of reciprocal altruism, which kind of goes beyond just the you know kin selection. And now you see, okay, there's actually great utility in being nice to others because they can reciprocate that behavior. Mm-hmm. So you start to see this logic unfold where actually being nice to other people ends up benefiting you tremendously. Um, but we're still not at good or evil yet. This is still just being being nice to somebody in exchange for reciprocal behavior doesn't necessarily establish a moral hierarchy all that does is creates a well it's it's an explanation of why we have certain moral intuitions which i think are important um just to continue on 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 the idea of uh, reciprocal altruism then beyond that you get group selection uh which is somewhat debated in evolutionary circles but now we're talking about even if an in, even if on an individual level there is i guess some hit in terms of like survival or reproduction if there's selection pressures working at the group level uh say you say you have two groups right one is very generous like everyone is kind of uh, they share a lot of their food their resources they have each other's back and then one group that is less so it could have been the case in our history that 
the group that was more ultra, that contained let's just say more net altruism mm-hmm. ended up actually doing better maybe they were also better at strategizing uh for combat as well like there mm-hmm. could have been all, all these like second third order effects uh due to the altruistic nature um of the group so so you start to see how you know a little bit of this uh phenomenon of of kin selection could cascade into uh you know full-blown you know uh people cooperating in the context of nations and states and, and whatnot. There, there's a very clear evolutionary path, I think, that emerges when you start to look at those details. And this leads me to game theory, actually. So <laughs> for, for those that don't know, game theory is basically, it's a field of study of, of basically cooperative strategies. Um, and what we find here when we when we look at these mathematical models is that there's these two dominant strategies one is the tit for tat strategy which is if i'm nice to you you're nice to me which you're is what you just established me, yeah yeah i'm rude to you and then there's this other uh dominant strategy which is called permanent defection and so this is actually akin to like psychopathy which is, you know, complete manipulation, cheating, deception, etc. And it actually is predicted by game theory when you consider like um, when you consider certain contexts, right? So if you have, you know, uh, if you have a society of like a bunch of nice people, nice all guys. you need is, yeah, a bunch of nice guys. All you <laughs> need is a, a genetic mutation or someone on the, you know, on one end of the bell curve that's the least nice who will start to exploit these people, right? And there is great utility for that individual. But it's only possible within that context. If everybody was a psychopath, that society would collapse immediately, right? Right. So there's kind of like, at some point, you know, uh, if you have too many psychopaths, I think there's like a bit of a, uh, a backlash, right? You'll have to like, you'll get more for, for that society to stay stable and prosper. You'll have to kind of like push back a little bit. There, there would have to be a larger ratio of like good people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see that these evolutionary strategies, uh, you know, that can be approximated in game theory in these mathematical models. Uh, and it, to me, this is like one of the most fundamental things about reality and how it seems to abide by the logic of the universe and not just logic of the universe, just logic in general, right? Like these things are purely like, this is purely logical, right? They, they, They are simulating like these basic mathematical, uh, they're using basic mathematical models to simulate essentially reality, right? I mean, very crude approximations, right? But they are doing that and they're getting the same results that evolution got. I think it's kind of important to say that a lot of these calculations are probably happening subconsciously, but they are happening. You know, when, for instance, you're driving to work. Well, I'm speaking, I mean, to to be clear, uh, maybe you're talking about something else here, but... Uh, what what I mean is the calculations as in the approximations of 
what occurred in our evolutionary history between groups, mm-hmm. between individuals within groups, and then between groups, right? Like this is what what game theory is essentially ca- like. This these are the calculations that are done right. to see which strategies come about. And and again, like I said, we find that the strategies in the mathematical mathematical models actually correspond to the strategies that we see in real life that that genuine, genuinely evolved through millions, perhaps even billions of years of evolution. That's crazy because you're saying there's a fundamental correspondence between what happens in the physical world in nature and this abstract realm of mathematics. I mean, it's, you know, we, we can get deeper into this. I think game theory in general is very interesting, but this relationship between like the abstract world uh, and, and the real world. I mean, it, to me, there's a sort of like consilience about it. It seems like the abstract was something that was used by religion to paint over dynamics that existed on like an evolutionary scale where it, it religion, maybe monotheistic and polytheistic religions kind of added character and mythos to programming that we have as a species. We are talking about the very elementary game theory that probably happened on a tribal level. A lot of religion and like the civilizations that produced said religions painted over the programming with almost characters and lore, right? Now you had a Zeus or a Hades to manifest qualities that would promote a healthy tribal atmosphere or a healthy civilization versus characteristics like sociopathy that were detrimental to the survival of uh, civilization. I don't think everything in religion, you know, has this one-to-one relationship between like, you know, these kind of biological underpinnings that we've discussed, you know, some things are just completely complete misunderstandings. Like, Hey, it's not raining. We need to sacrifice a child. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. and, and that, that, that's that's kind of the misnomers of polytheism, I think. But if you look at maybe how Christianity has influenced our own society, granted, again, back to the point where it's a bit out of date, a, a bit is probably an understatement, but the, the binary of Christianity, right, where things that were probably written as commandments, um, you know, thou shalt not lust after your neighbor's wife, that's probably there for a reason, right? Because lusting after your neighbor's wife leads to a series of events that could lead to the crumbling of your city state, for instance. Um, and, and, but I, I think to that point, it's also interesting to consider some of the imperatives that religion has brought about and some of the conflicts that's created and kind of trace it back down to the model that you've described, right? The Crusades, for instance, or the Inquisition in Spain, or, you know, or pursuing religious minorities and trying to either convert them or wipe them off the face of the map all done within this hierarchy established by almost our genetic programming our civilizational programming with how we would interact with the other or different tribes or different settlements and communities and and i mean i think like the 15th century is particularly interesting because that's when we, you know, discovered the new world and discovered with heavy quotation marks that listeners can't see. Cause obviously, you know, there's civilizations that existed here before, right. but all of a sudden Europeans that for such a long time have been fighting and quarreling with one another now found out that there is an entire civilization on the other side of the ocean, which they had to interpret through the prism of good, evil cost benefit and yeah. started wiping them off the face of the earth. And here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah. So uh, maybe enough about religion.
No. Well, I mean, religion is, I think religion has to be introduced in the concept of analyzing good and evil, even if you're not a believer, because religion has shaped, especially Christianity, at least in the United States, has shaped everybody's perceptions of what is a, a good action versus a bad action. Of course. Um, no, 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 no. Of course. Yeah. We, no, we, we, we've definitely considered it. I mean, I, I think we also talked about doing a separate podcast, uh, on how secular society has actually failed to provide a lot of the benefits of religion. And I think one of them being is even if sometimes a bit misguided, uh, some moral certitude and guidance. Right. So yeah, I, I think, you know, plenty to talk about there. I think, you know, both of us clearly admit, yeah, religion was absolutely fundamental in, in, in shaping our cultural and, and moral norms uh, in some ways. And that's uh, neither an endorsement or a rejection of religion. I think it's an objective statement of right. this is where we feel some of right. our understandings. But, of what but, but, but I, I do think like a lot of the good things, like when you talk about the golden rule, for example, again, I think you look back at the biological basis, right? The evolutionary basis of these tendencies of these moral intuitions, right? Jesus wasn't the first to, uh, to, to come up with a golden rule, no. but it doesn't matter who came up with it because at the end of the day, this tendency has clearly evolved as we, we see it in the animal kingdom. We've seen it in, uh, in game theory as it's predicted different cooperative strategies that reciprocation, right? Is, is, is a solid strategy to produce a stable society. And it goes back to the island analogy where if it was one person on an island and then the second person emerged, the best case scenario is kind of within the concept of the greater prisoner's dilemma that if both parties acknowledge that, okay, for our collective survival, it's better that we don't try to cut each other's throats or steal each other's coconuts. It's better that we get together. Exactly. Now... One of my uh, favorite uh, modern-day philosophers, Sam Harris. Oh, they're going to say Ben Shapiro. No, no, no. no, no, no. We, don't, we don't mention that guy's name around here. Sam Harris. Um, this guy has produced something that, like, it, it, to me, it's astonishing. Like, it took uh, someone who's a popular, uh, popularizer of uh, atheism and... Um, you could even say at this point, like meditation, and all these things it took someone like him to come up with what I think is one of the most brilliant kind of uh, books and works on ethical philosophy uh, for a long time. And his book, The Moral Landscape, it's a book that argues that morality is actually objective and can be determined by science, right? Moral values are tied to scientific understanding of human flourishing and well-being. So I want to read a bit of a, a quote from, from his book, just to kind of further elaborate on, on what he's going for. So human well-being entirely depends on events in the world and on states of the human brain. Consequently, there must be scientific truth to be known about it. Once we see that a concern for well-being, defined as deeply and as inclusively as possible, is the only intelligible basis for mor morality and values, we will see that there must be a science of morality. 
As we come to understand how human beings can best collaborate and thrive in this world, science can help us find a path leading away from the lowest depths of misery and toward the heights of happiness for the greatest number of people. Okay, so the simplest way to put what Sam Harris is arguing, he's saying as conscious creatures, right, we have these states, these mental states, and the, dis- the distinction between good and evil is, uh, he-, he likens it to like, okay, you have a society where uh, a girl gets battery acid thrown into her face for trying to read, right? Taliban does this, I believe, versus a society where a girl is free to pursue her educational goals. Okay, if, if you can't make the distinction between those two, like what's what's better than the other, then the, the, there's not much to say to this person, right? Because to anyone who's functioning with half a brain, like one is better than the other. And so the moment that you grant that there's this dis- distinction between... Uh, you can say good or positive mental states and, and, and bad negative mental states suffering, then that's the moment that you admit that science has something to say about it because we can actually measure these things, right, scientifically. Human flourishing is, is something that can be quantified to some level uh, scientifically. And so this is interesting because there are a lot of criticisms actually of this work because you get into the is ought problem, which is this philosophical problem that says you can't derive an ought from an is. And so what people claim Sam Harris is doing is saying, okay, because, uh, you know, you've described this mental state, like you can't say, therefore it is good to be in this mental state. You can say, okay, this is a good mental state, but you can't say, therefore like we should want this mental state you can't like kind of impose you see what i'm saying yeah well i think that the greatest you issue can't that like statement ascribe also a comes... duty to 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 go for you know a or b even even if you can describe this mental state you can't create a moral imperative well it suggests also a, a certain kind of supremacy to certain regards because then you start parsing it together into civilizations that might exhibit this mental state versus others who do not and that already adds a hierarchy to things which i think is what do you mean well i mean I, I thought the taliban example is pretty interesting too um throwing battery acid in a girl's face objectively is a terrible thing i think it's an absolutely horrific act of violence but we also exist in a civilization, at least in, that partially recognizes that young girls should have access to education and a role in society. We see that as an objective good, or at least we see acid being thrown in a girl's face as a state of misery, right? That I guess to Sam Harris's point, we should therefore avoid and reject. But that social that, that that kind of strafes into civilizational commentary, where the act of throwing battery acid in a girl's face in a different civilization may be occurring for a different set of reasons, and I think that kind of falls into how good and evil fits into the greater like geopolitical sense, where somebody is doing this thing, therefore they're evil. But it's also again back to your point about tribes. It's seeing the actions and behaviors of a different group from ours as objectively evil because our position is going to be objectively good. But but now you're. 
you're almost saying you're kind of ascribing to a moral like relativism. Of course, because that's exactly what it is. But but it's not the case if you make certain assumptions. If you assume <laughs> if you assume that Let's let's try to go back for a second here, okay? Do you believe that throwing battery acid into a girl's face for trying to learn to read is objectively good or bad? I think it is objectively atrocious. I think it is a terrible thing. Okay. So then how are you saying it's there's a moral relativism here? How are you saying like we're just ascribing our notions of good and evil onto another society like well, you just said it's objective well this is the limits of my argument because i can't argue on behalf of the taliban unfortunately and, and i'm very happy i'm not going to be put in that position on the show i think there are certain and, and the battery acid example i mean it, it's kind of such a blatant act it's such an atrocity that, that but, but, but but this is all you need see this is all you need is this clear distinction you don't need to know you don't need to have an answer for every question, right? So he, he makes this analogy in the book uh, about like health. So the distinction between being alive and dead is as clear as day, right? Yes. Okay. So we know like the dead person is not very healthy <laughs> and sure. the person who's alive is healthier than the dead person. Right. Okay. There are also some questions about like, okay, what is like, who's healthier? Like a, a, a weightlifter uh, who, I don't know, uh, who's like, in, I, maybe that's a bad example. Let's just generically say weightlifter versus like a marathon runner. Maybe there's an answer. Maybe there's not. Maybe they're both like healthy in their own way. Right. So even if there are questions that we can't necessarily answer about health and in the same way about morality, there's different peaks like he refers to in the moral landscape, right? You could have different peaks. They're different, but they're still just as good. You could also have, you know, multiple valleys that are just as just as bad when it comes to suffering. Even if we can't answer, the point is, even if we can't answer some of these questions, that doesn't that doesn't take away from the objectivity that uh that you're trying to get at, right? Like in principle there is still an answer we just don't know it there still is uh there still is a calculation that could be made theoretically if you had like an omniscient being or a computer with infinite you know capacity to calculate uh to assess these problems right <laughs> artificial intelligence right well yeah yeah i i, I think the this is the problem with the topic is that it is so there is no course to take because we're looking at a concept that I think inherently defines our inner relationships as a species, but is also very arcane and nebulous. And I mean, I, I don't think that I don't subscribe fully to moral relativism. I think the battery acid example is a pretty good illustration of that. I think there is also this notion of an act of evil probably also doesn't take place in a vacuum. So the point we see the battery acid being thrown in the face as like this culminating point, right? It, it, it is a very in your face, very terrifying thing that kind of is kind of goes against all of the, I guess to what Sam Harris was talking about, this infliction of misery goes against any natural impulses because this is a child. This is something that instinctively we seek to protect 
yes, objectively speaking, I'll concede to your point, this is an evil thing, but it didn't happen as like a random occurrence or a random embodiment of the Taliban's practices. There's a series of things that happens behind the scenes over the course of time that results in that action taken, right? If throwing battery acid in a girl's face is kind of the exemplary act of the policy of oppressing women, keeping them out of schools because, you know, X, Y, and Z needs to happen. There's also a question of why did this ideology really take hold, right? And what is it that happened in Afghanistan that resulted in the Taliban being empowered to begin with? And there is a series of evils that occurred at a sim- at another time that resulted in this action. So all we, sure. we, are, we are reacting to this objective thing that happened that is miserable. We are also, in essence, elevating our own civilization over whatever civilization perpetrates these atrocities, which is understandable. But there's also no consideration for the acts of evil that our own civilization... Well, yeah, I mean... Uh- so being a hypocrite, though, is, is different than still being able to say, like, this action is objectively wrong, right? Because I, I, I guess the entire discussion here is we're trying to figure out, like, what is good and evil? And I think the the, 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 the even bigger question maybe is also, um, or a question that's just as important is, is good and evil objective? Like, can you have a solid, like, foundation for it so that when you are tasked with some of these more complicated issues or maybe even issues between different nations you have something to actually fall back on it's not like hey my religion says this you know because then if you know you could just have an argument back and forth between different religions okay nothing's gonna ever get solved because it's it's they're unfalsifiable their god is inherent i think i think as a theoretical basis yes you could probably i think what sam harris is proposing is probably a valid model especially taking into account misery as like a as a reactive force right it's something that we could measure and kind of look at even like a term of terminology like hard statistics and data the problem is, is that once you leave the bounds of the theoretical space it stops being an objective point of analysis because it becomes colored by other things happening in the ether and all of a sudden you start attributing good and evil to things that are happening i mean outside of the spectrum of your own society and i fucking hate the term society because i feel like i'm talking in like mimatic platitudes but i i think once the the thought process around good and evil leaves kind of the the theoretical and goes into the pragmatic and practical that's when you start that's when it becomes inherently manipulated and attributed to various things that maybe you don't like on a civilizational level does that make sense yeah so you you're kind of saying you can't actually isolate these acts in a, like a specific moral event is there's too many variables that contribute to it, so it actually becomes maybe too difficult to parse in well, some ways. Is, is that what it, you're... It, it, it leads to an oversimplification of thinking. I mean, to kind of go back to a point we made a long time ago in an earlier episode when talking about, I believe the episode was titled World War Three. Give it a listen. It was pretty spicy. I think our editing was not quite... That was the worst episode. <laughs> but we, I think we discussed this notion of the Avengerification of American thinking, right? Every Every reaction an American has to a political event or a social event is going to be 
split into a binary of good guys versus bad guys where you have the Avengers with what are the Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, and the, the Hulk. Yeah. Um, you have the good guys and you have the bad guys. Who are the bad guys in the Avengers? Republicans. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you have the, no, but, but so you have the good guys and the bad guys and the good guys win because the good guys are intrinsically good. And you start noticing how this is warping how I keep on saying Americans. I'm sure this is a global phenomena, but it's what we're kind of enduring as podcasters based in the United States. But we're seeing how this oversimplified binary thinking warps how we can perceive things that happen around us and in the world. And the problem is, is that we start thinking of ourselves as the Avengers, as the good guys and everything else out there, they're all bad guys and they're bad. And, and that's what I'm getting at to the point where I think you can have objective good and evil, maybe in the philosophical realm, maybe you can in fact put very firm boundaries over what is good and what is evil based off of, again, to Sam Harris, the misery it inflicts, right? You know, objectively speaking, warfare, terrible, right? Awful. But we very much have a culture of the noble war in this country, right? We have sacrifices that are worth dying for, regardless of the misery it might inflict on a, on a universal level. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of get what you're saying. I, I think you might be diverging a little bit. You might be like you're t when we talk about throwing battery acid into the face of girls who are trying to read. Right. I mean, if you take that action kind of in in a vacuum, I think, you, you know, you said you would agree that this is. Yeah. This is not good. This is evil. Yeah, awful. Like if and if that's at, not evil, I don't know what else. Right. Yeah. Is. It, it is. It is a great manifestation of an outright. But you're evil saying act. the statement. I feel like you are almost criticizing, though. Like the statement that the Taliban is doing this is bad coming from someone in the West because it's so loaded with the the history behind uh, behind it all behind U.S. intervention in the Middle East. And how that may have played a role in the Taliban's uprising. Yes. Yeah. Like, I, I, but, I, but I think, you know, you're kind of, that's a different, now you've, you're talking about something else altogether. I think, I, I think what I'm getting at is the weaponization of the binary, right? The weaponization of good and evil, which is exactly what happens in these sorts of arguments, right? Objectively speaking, as a human being, as a, a thinking individual, it sounds so fucking pompous. As a man of thought, just as a human, that's, that's all it called that. I, I see this as an atrocious act. But what if a human thinks rape is good and that throwing battery acid into the face of girls is good? What well, do you say to that? Fuck you. Okay, but okay, but try again. What do you say to that? <laughs> I say that, that, is, that is evil. <laughs> that, that, that is. No, but on what basis is it evil? I think on the basis of my perceptions of, of your perception, but this is moral relativism. You have no ground. Uh, you have no footing. Correct. Here. Which is why I rejected moral relativism earlier. I, I don't actually right, but, subscribe but, to the but ideology. So then, so then how are you, okay, you rejected it, but now you're stuck in this problem where <laughs> you are using your subjective notion of good and evil to, to claim that, you know, a particular act yes. is evil. So I want to ask you again, like, how can you, if you're talking to, let's say I'm part of the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Which maybe is not too difficult to imagine, given my appearance, to some extent. That was like some <laughs> deep, like 
no, no. But let's imagine you're sure, talking. Let's sure. imagine you're talking to. Don't somebody. do the accent. Don't, don't, no, no. <laughs> let's imagine you're talking to yeah. somebody from the Taliban, <laughs> and they just threw battery acid on a little girl. Right. What do you like? How are you going to tell them? Like, and let's say he he sat down for a conversation over yes, a cup of after, coffee after he did it. Just right after. Yeah, that. the girl's still there. Like, yeah. What do you, what do you, how are you going to convince him that? Like, what's going to be your argument to tell him, like, hey, that's bad? But sure, yeah. I mean, okay, I see, I see your point. But what is the? Th- there's also the notion of a, who does the Taliban see when he's sitting across from me? What do you mean? I mean, it, this is why it, it kind of gets into. You start falling into a trap because I, I see it as a terrible thing, right? I see it as, because again, I think I agree with the point Harris makes about it inflicted a high level of misery, right? And maybe I have a biological imperative to kind of like react negatively towards misery, right? But, as, but I think in this particular case study, again, it, there's a lot of nuance. I'm not arguing that the battery acid scenario is in fact like a, a yeah, morally but, but, neutral but, thing. But you have to provide a basis. Like you can't just, I feel like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. You're saying it is objectively bad to throw the battery acid, but we, we can't really say X, Y, and Z. No, we can. I, I think we can as individuals, but when it happens on a civilizational level, I think that's when it starts losing. On a civilizational level. Yes. When the, okay. when, when I, I think this is so kind of. So give me an exact like moral question here. Like if. Is it objectively bad to kill children? To make children suffer. Let's say that. To make children suffer. Yes. Well, if, if you, okay, so it's like a, okay, you can just talk about like a similar trolley problem. If I make, if I push, if I push a button that makes four children suffer, yeah, but <laughs> 10, like, uh, you know, uh, prosper or be in an incredibly amazing mental state sure, of flourishing yeah. for their entire lives. Schools, amazing stuff. Right. Yeah. Like what, what do I do versus, okay, what happens if. There is, I don't know. Uh, God, I can't think of anything right now. The vacuum brain, yeah, yeah, vacuum brain. I asked that question because we react as as a civilization. Our country makes a lot of profound statements when these sorts of atrocities happen. Beat in Nigeria, but uh, with with, uh, the Chibok girls, when when Al Shabab, not Al Shabab, it is Al Kabab. It's not Al Shabab. No, don't say that. Um. When Boko Haram kidnapped the girls, you know, it was this kind of huge, huge kind of outpouring of moral reaction from the United States. Understandably, right? Same thing with the example of the Taliban. The battery acid. I think Malala was was the was was the girl who got um, the acid thrown under her face. She, she's actually, I think, she's like a UN educational ambassador mm. now. So we have these like sort of firm boundaries on this is objectively terrible, but then. I'm doing the Khrushchev pounding on them. <laughs> um, but when the United States Air Force drones a village, kills a bunch of children. But that's a different question. But it's not a different question. I mean, it is, but I'm saying we don't attach the same outrage. 
us being hypocritical though says nothing about whether we can label a particular act exactly good or and evil. that's what i'm getting at on an individual basis i think we see all these things okay. as objectively terrible on a civilizational level okay. you start attributing different tiers of value to these actions because the taliban does something well they're evil yeah no i i agree i think uh yeah i mean when you start to zoom out and yeah. you're trying to because the, the problem is the calculus becomes like it like just impossible right there's so many variables the, the, the more you zoom out on these problems and you're talking about um the good and evilness of a particular nation or a group of people mm-hmm. that i mean it, it's a question that we might not be able to actually answer because of all the variables yes that's, right? that's exactly what i'm getting at so then but that's still yeah okay i mean that, that that's fair i i agree i think some some things we just may not know or we cannot know due to the complexity, right? But that doesn't negate the things that we can know. And that doesn't negate that there is still a basis, right? For a sort of objective morality. Now, I'm not like fully sold that you can, in a purely philosophical sense, say like, okay, this is objectively good or bad. I think... I think when we're talking about good and evil and morality, if you're talking about it at an abstract level in a very, on a, on a philosophical plane, it's, it's sometimes, in some sense, it's kind of meaningless, right? It, 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 it needs to be anchored down to something in reality. Yes. And what I have been trying to get at, maybe not have done, have not done a great job, but I think it should be anchored down to a social context with conscious creatures, you know, co-op, that, that, that are in cooperation. And you have to have this additional assumption that um, uh, you, you want to maximize the, the well-being of, of the group. Because at an individual level, right, like the, the psychopath can maximize his well-being at the cost of everyone else. But you want to live in a society where the... the <laughs> The most important thing is to maximize the well-being uh, of everyone in the society, uh, you know, like a kind of a, a, a net um, uh, a net benefit to society as opposed to the individual. But when you say so, society, are you, are you still talking about in terms of our society? I'm talking about a, this, this kind of like an abstract group, like if you... But and, and I think this is where we start running into the more tricky elements of good and evil as we perceive it today, because a lot of, I think, atrocities, especially in the past 100 years, were committed exactly with that line of thinking in mind, right? Elevating your particular group of people versus versus another, right? Something that was done to the benefit of your people, even if it was something incredibly horrific and terrifying, it was still objectively speaking perceived as a good. So therefore you did it. And I think that's where I think we kind of have different maybe layers that we've been working through in our conversation. And we had kind of the biological historical elements to it, the cultural sides of it. We got into the philosophies of it, but in terms of the manifestations of it, I think that's where it gets especially interesting. And I think our greatest frames of reference for this as kind of citizens in, in a modern world is of, is of the 1900s, right? You had 
absolutely terrible things happen, like the Armenian genocide, which I think we're firmly taking a stance here on this podcast that indeed was a genocide. Yes. We're, we're going to be sanctioned heavily, but um, yes. Uh, and then, of course, the Holocaust, because I, I think that in itself is like the manifestation of the purest form of evil for anybody that was born afterwards, regardless if you grew up in the Soviet Union or the United States in the Cold War, regardless of, I mean, they're, you know, fucking crazy white supremacists out there that, you know, don't acknowledge or don't believe in it and countries out there that don't subscribe to it. But I think objectively speaking, we can agree that everybody's understanding of like the greatest act of evil in recent history was in fact the Holocaust. But when you start dissecting it and, and what I'm getting at is kind of this concept of the banality of evil. And this really comes from a work done by uh, a thinker named Hannah Arendt. I'm probably mispronouncing the name who was a German who was a Jewish German who fled Germany during the Holocaust. And she was in Jerusalem covering um, the trial of uh, Adolf Eichmann, who was the architect of the Holocaust from like, let's call it a bureaucratic level who established the bureaucratic procedures of the final solution that shifted um the Nazis policy of exportation of Jews to the exter extermination of Jews. Right. And as she was covering his trial in Jerusalem, because he ended up as many Nazis fled to, to South America after the war, then he was uh, captured by um, Israeli operatives brought back to Israel for trial. But as she was watching the, the coverage or covering his trial, she started noticing that, and this theory has been criticized a lot. And, and there's a lot of elements that maybe she didn't think about or omitted from, from her argument. But her central thesis is that Adolf Eichmann wasn't inherently speaking an evil person where he didn't have evil impulses. He didn't have um, kind of this sociopathic propensity to violence that I think a lot of people associated with the Nazi party. He was very much a mediocre pencil pushing bureaucrat in the German state, right? He is somebody who was solving a bureaucratic problem to get rid of Jews in Germany. And the governing ideology at the time was subscribed to the fact that Jews were in fact subhuman so he, as a bureaucrat, was simply doing his job, which is, you know, an absolutely horrifying implication because the consequences of that, the mass amounts of human suffering, the absolute atrocious conditions of the camps, the experimentation performed on the humans, the, you know, wiping out of entire generations of families and family legacies on a human level, that's absolutely terrifying. But he was looking at it strictly from a bureaucratic problem. And that's really one of her central points is that she makes is that evil can in itself kind of exist both as like this philosophical concept, but also the manifestation of good kind of human systems that are just kind of functioning as a, an element of, of the state. So you're saying it could be inherent to the system. Yeah, exactly. Okay, essentially a byproduct, an unintended byproduct. Oh, an unintended byproduct, but it's also... She was or even a, a byproduct that, even if maybe you're aware of the, the negative aspects of it, maybe the the, the, the benefit is worth the cost. But you know, the, I think the point she's making is that you don't even think there's a negative aspect to it. Right. If like, you, in it, most cases, you're not aware. And, and she, yeah. was, she wasn't just studying right. 
Eichmann's actions, right? Because he was a high-ranking member of the SS. So, you know, there's the ideological elements to it. But she was actually making a commentary on the Holocaust in general, where there is the very real evil of the Nazi party that was propped up by everyday functionaries in the system. Somebody who may not have been an ideological believer, may not have had, you know, a tremendous amount of hate for Jews, but who went to work every day and did their job and maybe their job was sharpening pencils and i'm being kind of facetious here but maybe they just sharpened pencils every day but those pencils were used to fill out forms with the names of people who had to be deported and then exterminated but at that point evil is so proliferated through a collective civilization who does in fact move in the direction of improving the lot for said civilization because they were ostensibly trying to like what would like the platitudes preserve the German race, move the German race forward. Yet they were performing acts that we will for the next foreseeable future see as the embodiment of absolute and total evil in our civilization. Yeah. 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 So I think that's where it gets really scary and interesting because it's something that is might be done thinking that it's absolutely good. Of course I want to clean up the streets and can't shit. We need to edit that out. Well, yeah, I mean the yeah, this touches kind of on um what we had talked about, I think actually before we started recording a little bit, but if you don't know like you do you, you perform a certain act and then if you want to determine its moral value like, when do you kind of stop the calculation, right? How do you know that a certain act is actually good or bad? And I, I brought up the example of Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, this wasn't even an intentional act. <laughs> it was, maybe, maybe some negligence, but... Yeah, a lot of... Uh, <laughs> but was that like a good event or an evil event? Maybe it doesn't even make sense to ask that question because... Uh, there wasn't necessarily like a sole agency responsible for that. But let's just say someone someone did kind of uh, intentionally go through with a nuclear uh, or, or lead to a nuclear meltdown, like some, some action that a person did lead to that. I mean, to say whether it's good or bad, you would have to know what the, the consequences are in the long run. If If such an act led to better safety regulations in nuclear power plants, which averted many more disasters down the line, it could have actually ended up being a good thing, right? So on some level, we never know if an action based on its consequences is good or bad. And that kind of goes back to the original, you know, point that we were, that I was making, at least like you, you need, you need this kind of fundamental framework to go off knowing like you're not going to know the exact consequences maybe ever, but that's, that, that's an impractical, um, I guess, framework mm. to, to, to use in evaluating these questions. I, I think that, does that make sense? It, it does. That kind of, it does. I think also to that, go back to your Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. Example. That, that probably only really does exist within the prism of like grand events, like big events. I think objectively on like an individual level, you could probably see the exact consequences of your actions. If I go and shoot somebody on the street, that's objectively a negative thing. What if you shot Hitler, the next Hitler? 
the next Hitler? Yeah, you don't know. You never know, though. Right. That's the thing. You never know. But the uh, uh, Hitler, yes, I could have shot the next, next Hitler, right? But that, that's a series of steps away from Hitler becoming Hitler. Right. In the moment, I'm shooting somebody. I'm depriving somebody of life. I'm potentially, you know, if that person has children, depriving the children of a father. Yes, that person could be evil, you know, a tyrant. But I guess it also gets the ultimate question, right? I mean, is violence... <laughs> Is violence evil? <laughs> yeah, it depends on the reason for violence, right? But then even your reasons are not... Th- those are very... Again, it, it's kind of a binary at that point. Because your reasons for violence, even if they're good for you and they're good for your civilization, could be objectively terrible for the Jews of Germany, right? Because the Germans probably very much believed, the Nazis at least, that's, that's kind of attributed there, the Nazis believed that their acts were indeed moving the German race forward. They believed it. It was in their ideology. But they were committing some of the worst atrocities we've endured in modern history. So, uh, did the Nazis think they were evil? You know, the meme, like, are we the baddies? You know, it's... Yeah, I mean, they definitely probably didn't subjectively... Maybe in hindsight, some of them like, reconsider. Oh, oh, but, shit. <laughs> but uh, I mean, let, let me pose this to you because on some level, we might be able to say all these conversations are mute because if we don't have free will, which is a whole, you know, other topic, right? Completely different topic, but also very relevant. But yeah. it's incredibly relevant because if it is the case that we don't have free will, which I believe we don't have free will in the in the very technical sense uh there's people have different understandings of free will fair enough it's a it's a difficult concept to grasp uh when you actually think start thinking about it but if it is the case that we don't have free will then is anyone respond like what does it mean to say you know uh, a psychopath is evil or you know, killing and raping a kid is evil. If there was no responsibility, there was no choice. He was simply acting like a bear who hunts salmon in the winter. He's raping the salmon in the winter. Or even potentially raping <laughs> salmon. Maybe there's a bear out there that does that. I don't know. But, but what's the difference between a bear eating salmon and a psychopath, a uh, murderer, you know, who's killed dozens of people and stored them in his basement. Like what's the, what is the difference between the two? If there is actually no free will, but sentient, because we don't, we don't ever ascribe that kind of moral behavior to a, like a bear. Right. Right. Even if a bear goes, goes and kills another bear for the hell of it. I don't know. It stepped on it. It, it it was peeing next to its territory. And then like, I, I, I don't know. We don't ascribe that kind of behavior to, to other animals. But if we ourselves don't have free will, then maybe even talking about good and evil in that sense doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think it does because we also don't exist within kind of the prism of the wild as a bear would or as a baboon would. We do have our social contracts that exist within maybe spoken, unspoken, maybe formally written you know, with constitutions and whatnot, but we have certain rules by which we've agreed to exist in our society collectively. Maybe we didn't have a choice to be born into those rules, but those rules are there. And maybe the bear kingdom has their own rules that we're just not aware of because we're not fucking bears. But, you know, a bear pees in another bear's tree. 
like yeah that's grounds for a bear to kill another bear and maybe it's totally chill for bears to do that but we don't really you know that that's kind of useless because i don't want to get into the finer points of bear civilization that maybe podcast for another time but i think we do have certain agreements that we have made as a civilization with one another that in order to coexist and live in an ecosystem together there are certain things that we have agreed that are bad right and i'm going to use the term good and evil here specifically within how we have defined our laws in our communities for instance right where i think singapore is a great example of this where in singapore they have very very strict punishments for defacing public property right if you are chewing a stick of gum you take the gum out and stick it on the bottom of a train seat that's going to be perceived as an inherently evil act because you are going against the benefits of public infrastructure, so to speak, right? You might be fined. You're probably going to be jailed. There's a pretty big controversy a few years back where like an American study abroad student, like did some American shit on a Singaporean train and ended up in jail and they had to like fly, you know, some corpse like politician out there to save him, whatever. But, and again, this is actually also interesting within the arguments that were made around the case of Otto Warmbier, the university of Virginia student who tore a North Korean propaganda poster off the wall and ended up in a, North Korean like prison camp and ended up dying there where they shipped him back to the States, like brain dead, basically right here, like fucking terrible, right? Somebody tears a poster off a wall. Like you're going to kill them for that. Are you kidding me? But North Korean society, that was an American who, you know, they have their own experiences in fighting wars in America with Americans. Um, an American tore a poster off a wall, which is like, you're violating the, the, the sacred nature of propaganda posters in North Korea. Again, speaking in platitudes. Yeah, no, I get it. The, the, I mean, there, there's the practical, whether we have free will or not, there's, there's this practical, like, consequences that are always going to exist. Right. So, so yeah, no, that, that's, that definitely makes so, sense. So, to your point, if but, somebody's going around killing and raping, we can say for but, sure that, yes, that is, in fact, evil because we have agreed as a civilization that is evil. Well, maybe it's semantics. It's like, can you say it's evil because evil has this, like... Um, this notion of like responsibility and agency behind it. But okay. if there is no free will, there is no agency, then it's not evil. It's just like, this is bad. We don't want him in society, but he's not a, he's not an evil person. There's no such thing. He's just unfortunate enough to have been born with a fucked up amygdala or something, right? He has a tumor in his brain that has caused him to behave in this manner. He's very unfortunate, but he's not evil, right? Like you don't call the, uh, the, uh, a dog who accidentally bites someone like it's not an evil dog it's like okay maybe it's like maybe there's something wrong with the dog maybe it's poorly trained maybe whatever is but going i on. actually think we do call not the dog but the, the rapist in this example i think we do call him evil i think there's probably less thought for like oh the tumor why, that's pressing if on someone his doesn't have free will and they're like if a rapist if well the rapist wouldn't have free will in this example because we're talking about a world without free will <laughs> yeah. or this world actually well uh, i don't know how to agree with you in my yeah, opinion yeah but they're not evil they're just they're people we want off the streets they're people that we don't want to be you know associated with we don't want anything to do with we we want them as far away from us as possible maybe we even want them dead but to call you wouldn't call a sack of potatoes evil if a it, sack of potatoes also it, doesn't rape people in the park. If a sack of potatoes fell off a shelf and hit and killed you, fell on your head and killed you, it's not an evil sack of potatoes. Right, because it's not a sack of potatoes. But if the sack of potatoes, sack of potatoes decides to rape you, it's not a, 
It's not an evil sack. No, of at that potatoes. point, the sack of potatoes. I, I think. I think the it's sen- a possessed. I think. Sen- <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? That's that's gonna be a t-shirt design, by the way. Uh, possessed sack of potatoes. <laughs> Alert. Possessed. Uh, yeah. Uh, beware of sack. Um, I, I think that sentience is a very important thing in this because a sack of potatoes is not a sentient entity. I mean, maybe potatoes have feelings, whatever. To my knowledge, to our immediate perceptions, a sack of potatoes is not a sentient. The sentience doesn't correspond to agent. It is not synonymous with agency. I think that it is. Sentience? Yeah. So being aware. Yes. If I'm aware that I'm going to rape somebody and cause them a level of misery and I still do it, I think that constitutes as evil because you know what, the, what it's going to do. You know, I mean, again, I think there is a differentiation between somebody that's got like a, a fucking tumor in their head that kind of inhibits and warps their thinking. But somebody who is, and I guess it's difficult to establish who is actually clear of thought, right? This is like why with all those school shootings, never we try matter. Them. You're still, you're st- it's still neurochemical reactions going on. Sure. Why, how, how are you making this distinction? You're, you're talking about a subjective distinction, but it still doesn't really establish. It doesn't establish agency is what I'm trying but to say. The capacity to check your impulses, which we can do. I'm sure you've done it in your life. I've done it in my own life. Right. But no, I don't choose to do that. It happens. Like I didn't choose. So, I mean, again, maybe we shouldn't get bogged down in this debate on free will, which but, is exactly what's happening. Yeah. Well, let's just, I mean, do you want to continue? What do you say? I mean, we can keep going for a little bit. Okay. Okay. So what was I talking about? Uh (laughs) You're saying about um, choosing to check an impulse is not a choice. It is an... an, Right. Like I didn't... So I didn't choose uh, my genetics. I didn't choose the environment under which I grew up. I didn't choose the level of stress that my mother was under when she was pregnant and Mm -hmm. how that impacted my neural development mm-hmm. right all like none of these things i chose when you start breaking it down like you, you see that there is no there's nothing left for a free will like there's nothing left for your will there's everything is dependent upon something else factors and yeah. it's fixed and even if some things are random that's still you know, indeterminacy does not equate to agency, right? But I, I think the, the question of will does come into play where, you know, in a situation of like, uh, kill, do not kill, right? Those are two actions you can take. Those are two actions you can well, rationally take. And Well, you're presupposing free will. You're kind of making a circular argument. And you're presupposing the fact that free will doesn't exist. No, what I'm saying is all these causes that contribute to human behavior, genetic, environmental, are outside of like what people exactly. typically consider. But those aren't the only things that I f- believe are influencing human. I think those factors are important and very critical in so understanding. What, okay, let me ask you this. What, what is free will? Like, how, how are you even defining it? I, I think I'm defining <clears throat> free will as conscious choice. And I'm, but what does conscious choice mean when you strip out genetics, when you strip out the environmental context, when, when you strip out the environmental forces that sure. shaped you, et cetera, right, right. what does it mean to make a choice? And I, it can't be random or arbitrary because randomness and arbitrary, like that's not really, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say it's a choice 
if every time like uh i don't know what, what's the what's the casino example the what the uh, the casino example like casino uh, if you're playing roulette okay yeah yeah like if you're kind of if you're constantly spinning the wheel sure. and it a- ends up on a random number you didn't choose that number no. but if that's deciding your course of action nobody would say that's freedom Right, that's just randomness. I think it's taken. So, so, so you, you don't the, have genetics. the prism of choice. Let's say again, coming down to um, this kind of example of somebody hands you a gun, or no, the 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 milligram experiment. Right, you're sitting at a at, at a desk. There is a person sitting on the other side, and you have a button that delivers an electric shock, and you're asking the person a question, and the researcher that's monitoring the situation sitting next to you, and he tells you every time the person gets the question wrong you have to push the button. And every time you push the button, it delivers a painful shock to the person. The person screams and writhes. And you have the choice to push the button or not push the button, right? Well, you're saying you wouldn't have a choice. It's all... Uh, it's an, you have the illusion You have the of illusion choice. of choice, yeah. But what I'm saying, I think maybe... I wasn't going to... I was going to respond to you by saying sentience is what the factor differentiates. But I see your point about... I can't argue you can't use like a metaphysical or an abstract concept in arguing for free will right i think that the way i would define sentience in this example is awareness of you are aware because you're experiencing reality and that if you push that button it will in fact deliver a shock to the person sitting across the table right i you, mean if you want to redefine free will in such a way that removes agency but it still captures like this idea of like intention and what the person will do in the future and like these cues, which can be used to then punish them and say that this is an evil person. It still to me doesn't lack the, it's still to me. Well, I think if you, if you, as the person, as the button pusher, right? If you know that pushing a button will deliver a shock of pain to the person sitting across from you, you're aware of that because you've, you perceived it in your environment, Right. You've heard the person scream. You've, you know, you've seen them writhe in pain. And then you choose to still push the button. And I guess the Milgram experiment is a great example of your own argument, too, because there's also like the social conditioning when the person telling you to push the button is wearing a uniform, you know, all these things that, that kind of play into your calculation. But you, you, in this situation, you can choose not to push or push the button, right? And if you choose not to push the button because you're aware it's causing somebody pain, I think that's an expression of free will to a certain extent. Why is that? Why do you say that as opposed to it being an expression of personality traits that were clearly, that were determined uh, genetically? And we know that from many studies that there's a high degree of heritability Sure. When it comes to personality. And I think all those factors are important because, you know, nobody is raised in a vacuum. Yeah, exactly. I I guess to to go back to my original question on this, how I I have yet to see anyone define free will in a coherent manner. So I'm still waiting on a definition of free will. Like, what does it mean to choose something if if that if your definition of choice or the ability to choose doesn't include the genetic factors? the environmental factors and uh it, it's not random or arbitrary but of course it's going to include them it has to include them then it's not free but then you right you, but you, how can you make a determination no, no, that your choice hang on hang on how can you make the determination that your choice is in fact influenced by these things 
where like i guess you wouldn't know either way it's like arguing for, about the existence of god you wouldn't know because you don't know if a choice is being made in spite of all these things or if it's been being made exclusively as a consequence of these things that have influenced you we're not we can't know that because we can't measure that so that you're we're kind of i think the argument is sort of moot because both parties are sort of arguing for things that you can't grasp or perceive or define well I'm I'm making a stronger claim that the idea itself of free will is incoherent. I think you can make separate arguments that show human behavior is so tightly constrained by the the aforementioned factors like genetics and the environment. Sure. That even if there was free will, it would be such a small factor to almost be like negligible well, it's a factor so, amongst many other factors i think is what the, what the well what, is. I, what i'm saying is if you look at the literature on this like you have that book behaved by robert sapolsky right yeah there. i'm balancing my microphone on it, or like, i was that book has a great breakdown of all the all the variables that contribute to like a certain decision right a certain behavior and nowhere is there room for free will. And you see this time and time again in, in the different studies that it, it kind of elaborates on. But I still think if free will was a concept that made sense, you could, you should be able to define it. I, I, I think like literally the idea of freely choosing something, th th this is the point I'm making. The idea of freely choosing something does not make any sense whatsoever. The idea of a free choice is in and of itself completely incoherent. It's almost like a meaningless statement. It's almost like saying square circle. It's almost like saying, asking the question like, can God create a rock too heavy for himself to lift if he's an omnipotent God? Sure. To me, it's a completely meaningless question. It, it doesn't actually even make sense. Free choice, under the assumption that Genetics isn't contributing, right? Because if it's free, genetics can't be a cause of the free decision. But what I'm saying is that you can always... Yeah, it I, could I, contribute I, to it, but you can't include it in the definition of freedom because it's a separate variable. But, but I, think, I, I, think, I think choice happens taking into consideration everything else that, that's leading up to the choice, right? Genetics, environment, experience, culture, all these things are all variables. But right. what, what I'm saying is that... The choice in itself cannot be a factor that is effectively measured because you're never going to know if somebody is making a choice, choice, excuse me, in spite of all the factors that are in theory powering the thought process behind the choice. You're not going to know if somebody's going against their programming or you're saying there's so what you're alluding to is like, OK, there's this mysterious variable that we can't actually put our finger on. Yes. What I'm trying to say is, though. What you're trying to get out of the variable inherently implies that the variable is incoherent. Like that you have failed to actually properly define this variable based on the effect that it produces. The effect that it produces, we do know, right? What you're going for is like a libertarian free will of uh, I am fully behind i have full agency behind decision a and b well that's also not what i'm arguing because i'm also acknowledging all of the factors that will contribute contribute to making a decision i just think that 
I agree with the statement that there are multiple factors, including a sense of will that lead up to somebody making a decision to commit an act of violence or, you know, to buy. I, I think like certain things are more difficult to trace with like purchases and like capitalist expression. It's easier to measure that. Yes. In fact, this choice is not free because you've been inundated with fucking advertising. Right. But I think on certain levels, yes, all these factors are in play in addition to this kind of, and I think that's the issue with our argument is I'm, I'm trying to argue in favor of something inherently metaphysical and arcane. That's a little bit harder to pinpoint as opposed to like genetics or environmental uh, factors that, that, I think all of these are elements that go into the fold of a choice or an action, but it, it is very hard. I think almost impossible to fully determine what actually spurned a choice between A and B. And you can't make the full claim that it's exclusively genetics environment and like these conditioning elements when in fact it could have been, you know, you could have rejected everything that has put you in that place in making your choice. And we're never going to know that. And we can't study that. We can't like dive into that. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like, ar it's like arguing about religion, right? Well, not religion. Let's say the existence of God. We're never like, we have all the scientific evidence suggesting that this planet did not in fact start like 6,000 years, 6, <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Wait, like, like that is objectively true. Right. But at some point, like, can you say objectively that God exists or doesn't exist? We couldn't really, because we don't know because. So, okay. So, I mean, it, it's one thing to say that we could potentially have free will, but there's just no evidence of it. And I don't believe like, I'm okay with that position of saying like, maybe there's something, maybe there's this mysterious variable out there sure. and maybe in some crazy sense, it is actually what we all meant this whole time by the idea of free will, but none of the evidence currently suggests that it's the case. And if you actually try to think about it right now and break it down philosophically, it's an incoherent concept. Right. Because it doesn't fit into the mold of, but it doesn't, but I, Again, like I, I, I am not not to like completely beat a dead horse here, but I'm making a stronger claim that the idea, like when we're even talking about free will, it doesn't make sense. So not only am I saying it's not a variable when it comes to choice, I'm saying it, it it's like you're talking literally, like I said, about a square circle, a thing that doesn't make sense. You're saying. Yeah, potentially there's this undefined concept that could exist or this unintelligible concept. Right. That's essentially what you're saying to me. Yes. And what I'm saying is why make that? Because you could have an infinite number of those unintelligible concepts that we're not aware of. Yes. Why? But why even that's... That is essentially saying, yeah, free will doesn't exist because, in a practical sense. That's essentially what you're saying, but but you weren't saying that before when you were making the case for free will. I think I'm accepting how you are phrasing my argument. I, I think simply, I think that you, what you are doing is you're attaching all these very logical parameters around what impacts choice. I think those are very, I think you have to acknowledge these things, but I think you will never be able to fully understand as to why a choice was made the way it was made. You can sure, but that does not, you, how do you go from that to introducing a new parameter called free will, which you have not defined. Right. And that's I think my, that's my beef. But I also think the beef here is also because you're coming at it, having read all these books and I'm trying to argue with you based off of my limited understanding of your concept. We're also not coming at it from the same standpoint of research and understanding. That's kind of like arguing with a flat earther. 
where a flat earther is always going to be very well read on these concepts and they're going to be able to argue with you. Whereas I probably couldn't tell you about like the scientific evidence backing You're being up too generous to yourself. <laughs> I'm calling you the flat earther. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Damn. Okay. I can, well, how dare you? But I think, th- I think it's a very, and you, you, you are very right. This is a, a topic that could be spoken about to like infinite levels of time. And at some point you start walking around the same circles, but I think this is a very critical foundation to understanding good and evil. Because if, and in fact, let's say for this example, that we agree that free will does not exist. Therefore you kind of lose the binary of good and evil because then nothing is, is, you know, if nothing if no choice occurs with any like fragment of individual like true true individual initiative if it's all programming and and Mm -hmm. you know if somebody goes out and shoots up a school but and this is a great uh segue back to our previous episode with the uvalde shooting right there's all these elements of the kid the, the shooter's uh biography coming out where they were raised in an unstable household. The mother was drug addicted. The father was absent. He had a speech impediment, so he's made fun of in high school. Like all these factors that eventually contributed to him carrying out a shooting of an elementary school. Objectively speaking, what he did was like fucking evil, right? But I suppose if you take the free will out of the equation, he never had a choice in the matter because his life was his shitstorm of a life that he had no say in because right. he didn't become a rational thinking adult until 18 when he like performed this. Uh, massacre mm-hmm. is that in fact a, an act of evil i mean i think there is like the interpretations we're going to have as a civilization as a society what he did was inherently detrimental to our, to well, our civilization well, some, some of this is also just semantics and i think some of that is what we got caught up in yeah uh you know like talking about the uvalde like if there's no free will like that's not to say we still can't say like we don't want that or it's bad instead of evil. Maybe we use bad. I don't know, but it becomes a semantic game where like, you still have to describe it in some way. And, and you, you know, I mean, to go back to the earlier basis that we talked about, you know, what Sam Harris has promoted, you know, this kind of maximizing the well being of, of people of, of society, that being kind of the measure of like, whether something is good or bad, you know, whether it's a peak on the moral landscape or, or a Valley, um, regardless of whether free will exists, that's still the case, right? There's still sentient. Obviously I don't argue against consciousness and sentience. Like, okay. Yeah. You still feel pain. You still suffer. You still feel pleasure, etc. So, um, yeah. So I guess that's that let's, let's talk about maybe let's circle back to the Tesla example, <laughs> the, the, the modern day trolley problem. Because we've kind of, you know, we, we've had a discussion, like, like you said, about all the different cultural and religious elements and then the biological elements that all kind of form our understanding of good and evil. And earlier we were, you know, we asked a question about, you know, should the Tesla, um, should it kill the drive, the drive, the self-driving Tesla, should it kill the driver if it can't avoid a certain obstacle or, or kill the pedestrian, Right. Let's reframe that into something even maybe more interesting or maybe even more difficult. I don't know. You have the same Tesla that has to go left or right and the brakes have failed, right? And so you have group A, which is a total of four people on the left. And that includes two teenage boys and girls with their entire lives ahead of them, etc. 
And then group B on the right, six people in total, four middle-aged college professors, and an elderly couple. Of course you killed the college professors. I mean... (laughs) But, But... who does the Tesla kill? Have has our discussion illuminated anything? Has, no, it absolutely has. Has it provided us an ethical framework to determine, you know, which is which is? A, and, I, and I think if we leave the sub ten AI, it's pretty clear what the choice is going to be. The AI would probably run the calculation that it's better to kill the older people. I think so. I, w- I think it would look at the value, of, uh, the the kind of the future value, the potential of the. Of the four people on the left. Or maybe you would just kill the driver because Or you don't really have enough. What if those four college professors, right? Like you don't you might not have enough information. What if those four college professors are like Nobel Prize winning level like that cancer cure? And then the four kids on the left are kind of just very average. One of them's Hitler. One of them could even be Hitler. No, but even AI can't can't make this. So so how is it even you know, Actually, I think AI would be able to make that calculation. Let's say like, you know, AI it won't have the input. How would it have the life history? And unless you would feed all the information to this AI into a database where it knows everything about the life trajectory of each individual, well, how would it make that calculus? But I think it would make the calculus simply because the AI probably would have a baseline of data, especially with like edge computing and sensors, probably in like a very swift time frame could run like an analysis based off of um let's say that the four college professors right what if like in the algorithmic thinking it determined that ah yes these are publishers of like significant research regarding heart therapeutics maybe at that point yeah killed the kids the ai and i think maybe this is what will be very interesting as we start integrating more and more of AI into data analysis and, and, and kind of drawing algorithmic conclusions is that we're going to have to, we can almost outsource decision-making to a certain extent. Well, it's too complex for the human mind right. to run the calculations. Well, it, right? it's, so, it's, co- it's complex to the human mind for the calculations, but, but I think we have you also... It, but we have to give it the, the, the basis for making those value judgments, right? But also so to your base. original point about free will, the human mind will inherently be clouded by the predetermining factors in making that decision, right? The AI doesn't have to be. You can create an AI that that can make objective decisions without the influence of... But the basis for the AI to make the value judgment has to be... Like, the the engineers of the AI have to actually provide that um, framework for the AI. Sure. So, is the framework going to be what kind of what Sam Harris alluded to? Like, how do we maximize the the well being and the flourishing of of uh, of humans? Like, is that the key? Um, I don't know the key input that the AI needs to make these value judgments. I mean, would the AI even be able to make this? Kind and of value if judgment? so, is that even enough? Like, do we need more specific you know, input? Can, can can you give it the abstract idea of like, hey, maximize? You know, human right. flourishing. Well, it turns out it kills like everybody. Ninety percent <laughs> of all people who have a gene that predisposes them to depression, right. and then it's going to say, okay, the the remaining ten percent are going to proliferate, and they're going to be way happier, and they're going to create billions of we children. Solve depression. That that is yes, we have absolutely cured uh, the world of depression, and it's going to be the happiest society ever, and it's going to be great. Whatever. Yeah, th- th- there's ways to maximize human well-being and flourishing that might 
still be intuitively incredibly unethical. And so when you leave it up to the AI, you could have these very strange like outputs, right? That don't really make sense because the AI is thinking in such a crazy way. It's also thinking steps right? ahead of everybody else too, right? Right. If you're... But then, but then who are we to say it's wrong, right? Like, what if that does create the maximum good? Like, what if you have to, you know, Sam Harris mentions this in his book as well. What if you have to go down a valley before you get to like a higher peak, right? We could be at a, you know, sort of a peak now, but to get to the next peak, you kind of have to go down a little bit. Again, maybe not a, not a smooth path to maximizing this kind of well-being and flourishing. Right. I think it's also interesting because the... I mean, if let's say the AI did kill those two kids, would we call the AI evil? Would we say that, oh, you killed two children? You know, what we know is designed by, well, so I guess it depends on this exact AI, right? Like if it's an AI that was clearly engineered by humans, it's one thing. But if it's a sentient AI, right, that is kind of making decisions on his own based on just it being incredible, like way smarter than humans, right? But I mean, it doesn't have to be sentient. I think like when you start inputting, like as mass data processing like, becomes like an increasing function of AI, you could feed infinite amounts of data into the AI algorithm, which would then be able to make decisions based off of the input. Right, but the engineer still crafted the algorithm. Well, the original, therefore, yeah. Therefore, it is the, you know... It, it is a responsibility of those engineers. You, you would, you would classify them as evil or negligent or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very difficult question as we've seen. And we're nowhere as a society, we're nowhere even near coming up with a proper framework. I, I think we can come up with something intelligent. I think like Sam Harris has made a good contribution uh, like kind of taking this more scientific approach and 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 using that uh, as, as a starting point, but I think we need more thought into this. We need uh, more sophistication because I mean, you look at some of these problems that we're going to have in the future. I mean, that exist now and also in the future. We're going to get increasingly more complicated ethical questions, and we are so unprepared, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it is a difficult issue. It's not hard to imagine why we're struggling, actually, because it is inherently incredibly difficult. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, in the end, are, are we good? Are we evil? I think we're pretty chill. This is a question <laughs> of uh, human nature, I guess, right? This is what you're alluding to. I think to as here. long as you're thinking about it and you're not <clears throat> certain of one thing or the other, that's probably the best solution you could have. I think as long as you're continuously questioning your own actions and trying to understand why you've done things or why you're doing things that's probably the healthiest conclusion we can have at this point where if you're not if you're going through the world thinking you're objectively good i think that's probably not a very helpful or healthy thing to be doing so i think ultimately comes down to continuous questioning and and kind of a, a lack of certainty in in any one direction. I, I like that. It makes sense because there is an inherent lack of certainty. As we talked about, you know, when it comes to the consequences of certain actions, there's this inherent impossibility and uncertainty in knowing the ultimate, you know, value 
whether it was a net positive or a net negative or a net good or evil. So having this philosophy of like continuous improvement and self-reflection and self-improvement when it comes to our understanding of good and evil, that I like very much. Anything else to add? Vacuum brain. Vacuum brain. I, I have been vacuum brain most of the podcast, <laughs> so I don't know how I'm doing this. This uh, also happens to be the longest How podcast. long are we running right now? One hour and 43 minutes. Oh, geez. To whoever made it all the way through, um, let us know. We'll, we'll buy you a beer. We'll send you a t-shirt. We'll send you Levon's that t-shirt. Says, uh, what was it? What was it? A sack of potatoes t-shirt? Yeah. Yeah. R- rapist sack of potatoes. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on the Radius of Reason. Um, I'm Andre. My co-host is Levon. And we'll catch you next time. Adios.